Hail Dictinus! Grant us clear voices, strong sound, and good reads. I have never met a vampire personally, but I don't know what might happen tomorrow. Welcome to Vampires, the 249th episode of Three Pagans and a Cat. Our opening today is courtesy of Bella Lugosi. Our opening and closing music is credited as Frostwalt's Alternate by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0. You may call me Ode. Merry meet. My name is Gwyn. I'm Ode's mother. And it's in spooky season. Spooky season. Spooky season. Spooky season. Well, we're a little slow getting we're, into spooky yeah, season. We took our time. We took but our time. But we are here. We're here in spooky season. In spooky season. It's time to talk about vampires. Vampires. But before that, we have housekeeping. Um, I'm going to keep my half of housekeeping super brief because the only thing I want to talk about right now in housekeeping makes me angry. Support Doctors Without Borders. Yes. Uh, Give them some money so that they can keep trying to get aid into Gaza. Yes. They currently can't get any aid into Gaza, but keep sending Doctors Without Borders your support because they're trying very, very hard to make that happen. Mm Mm-hmm. Agreed. And that's all I'm going to say about that, because the whole situation makes me furious. And I will second that. <laughs> and I don't actually have any other housekeeping to share. Yeah. I just second that. Yeah. And uh, let's light some candles for uh-huh. uh, for Gaza, for the people of Gaza. Yep. Because it's horrifying. That's where house kept and... House swept. Hooray! Huzzah! Okay. We will now proceed to vampires. Vampires. A much, a much more fun topic. Yes. Vampires. So I did so much research. Well, it was a good thing. You probably, <laughs> I, you always do more research than me, but I did do some. I, I'm, yeah, you got notes on the table. I do. <laughs> so there is so much to talk about with vampires. It is one of my favorite uh, mythological creatures. Yes, and I did beings. find when I was doing my uh, my research, and I do have some. I, I found some interesting things out about. The origin of Dracula, the mm-hmm. novel. Yes, there's and, a lot. There's a lot. Oh, my God. Yes, so much. And I found some interesting things about the origin of vampires. Yeah. Which so, is not what people think. Yeah, no. So we're um, we're not going to, like, we've got an hour roughly here, right? Like, we're not going to talk for two hours on this subject. We could. We will. We won't. Oh, we might. I have other things to do. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> but... Vampires, very fun topic. You could probably do a whole podcast oh, just about vampires. This is why I'm like, why are we not? So let's start with myth- the mythological vampire. The mythologicals. Well, I thought this was very interesting. The concept of the vampire as an undead creature, you know, has been around for about a thousand years, but not where we think it was. Yeah, so the the mythological vampire has a lot, act, like the, the current concept of the yeah. mythological vampire has a lot of ancient origins. Like it, it is sort of widespread across mm-hmm. uh, multiple societies. However, vampires as we know them from like medieval England mm-hmm. or yeah. the Western the, yeah, medieval, European. The, the medieval European vampire yeah. is really the one we're familiar with. Post-date witch hunts, werewolf trials, and Puritans with their demons and devils. Because it actually really, the origin is really in like Slavic countries, kind of a narrow Slavic mythology. And the vampire was actually not this creature that drank blood and, and things. It was more like a like a ghost or, or a, a, a ghostly kind of creature that caused havoc and mayhem and illness and things like that. Sort of. There were a lot of, like I said, there are a lot of contributing mm. figures to, mm-hmm. to modern vampire mythology that sort of all got mishmashed together, yeah, in medieval yeah. Uh, society. Mm-hmm. So, like, there are 
blood drinking or flesh eating undead beings Mm -hmm. in a lot of different cultures. Mm -hmm. Really, truly worldwide. Most of them just aren't called vampires, right? They're called something specific to the local area. And they, they have various characteristics. Yeah. And the, the medieval vampire really sort of does smash a bunch of those, mm-hmm. a, a, a bunch of features from those beings together. Yeah. And I think that's what really people think of a lot of times when they think of, of vampires is is some of the, you know, this idea that of the corpse coming back to life mm-hmm. and drinking blood, you know, having to like chop off their heads and right. like, take a holly a, through A their, variety of different... You know, all these different things. Methods. Yeah, you know, these different things to prevent the dead from rising. It all really kind of stemmed, I think, a lot of it from this concept of, of keeping the dead in their graves. Right, which is another very old concept that mm-hmm. is in a lot of different um, societies, right? Mm-hmm. Like you got the Greeks p- placing the coins in the mouth, mm-hmm. consecrated ground, mm-hmm. which is supposed to... to it's consecrated specifically to prevent mm-hmm. interference with the corpse by mm-hmm. evil spirits. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and because the the concept of an undead being as distinct from a vampire mm-hmm. is sort of even more widespread than the the vamp- the blood drinking mm-hmm. fiend mm-hmm. specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, there was just a lot of concern in the ancient world about things happening to the corpse. Yes, yes. And so there are yeah a lot of traditions, and a lot of those also end up getting smashed into yeah. the vampire myth. And that's where a lot of our superstitions about graveyards mm-hmm. and, and throwing salt over your shoulder or, yep. or crossing yourself or blessing you when you sneeze. Yeah. Or, you know, a lot, <laughs> a lot of, of that stuff comes a from, lot of that stuff, from you know, superstitions. It about, comes from superstitions. It's, it's, uh, it, uh, and uh, about sort of keeping evil things out of the body. Yeah. Keeping evil things out of the body, keeping the, the dead in the ground. Mm-hmm. The, I guess the smashed together vampire, yes. let's say. Who, yeah, the, a lot of, um, especially modern fiction, modern vampire fiction does draw mm-hmm. specifically from like Slavic and Romanian mm-hmm. and Russian mm-hmm. folklore. Mm-hmm. Which a lot of uh, what I was reading, they believe it, it really kind of came over into the Western history from the Eastern, like in the, what, 1600s maybe? Started when the migration of... 1500s, yeah. 1500s yeah. when the migration of like Eastern... European uh, folklore started migrating into the Western the, when, uh, thought process. Yeah, and well, and in particular, there were several reports mm. written about vampiric activity mm-hmm. in those areas, which made their way west. Right. Um, and were picked up, uh, in particular, by uh, fiction authors. Yes, yes. But but before we get to that... But before we get to before that... Before we get to... to the, the fictionalization of the vampire. Mm-hmm. We'll talk a little bit about the the mythological vampire. Yes. So, like I said, the mythological vampire has a lot of varied characteristics because it draws from these Different. worldwide mm-hmm. figures that were not vampires, really, but that were like blood drinkers or flesh eaters or undead or well, like I said, ghosts. The, like the one that I was reading about that was considered, you know, the vampire creature of mm-hmm. this particular Slavic culture. It was it was more of a poltergeist kind of a creature. Yeah. So there were there were a variety of powers attributed mm-hmm. to vampires in various cultures. Yeah. There definitely were poltergeist activities where like the the vampire mostly just caused mischief. Yeah. Like threw things around the house, made people fall ill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That kind of a thing. Of it, lots of it. Where was, there was no uh, like physical. Where there was no physical assault. Mm-hmm. 
but it was still understood to be the the powers of the dead person. Mm-hmm. There were vampires, vampire myths of undead beings who literally did rise out of their graves and mm-hmm. stalk around and yeah. kill and bite people. Mm-hmm. Backing up a little bit. There were a variety of ways you could become a vampire. Mm-hmm. You could be buried improperly. Uh, it was thought that the corpses of witches would often become vampires. Hmm. It was thought that victims of suicide would become vampires. That makes sense. Because it was an improper death. Right. Uh, it was possible for a corpse to be possessed by a spirit. And become a and vampire. And become a vampire. Um, so where the vampire was less like a natural function of like the body has re-risen and is still the same person. And it was more like, well, this corpse was empty. Mm. And no one took care of it properly. So a spirit just jumped into it. There's actually a Jewish myth about... Uh, a widow's corpse that was not properly watched over. There's a vigil mm, yeah. uh, uh, that happens uh, during during uh, Jewish funerals, and that process wasn't undertaken properly. Mm-hmm. And so the woman's corpse was possessed by a spirit okay. and it rose as a vampire to killed hundreds of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the rabbi's judgment was that this was the fault of the family who had not properly watched over the corpse and who had created this opening for an evil spirit to enter the body because it wasn't being watched. Mm-hmm. I wonder if some of these legends have, you know, have origins in, you know, how sometimes they thought people were dead who weren't actually dead. <laughs> some of that probably did happen occasionally. Not, it, it happened more often in, back in the day yeah. than it does now, for well, sure. Yeah, obviously. Um, because they didn't have a necessarily a perfect understanding of conditions that could cause uh, some of the... Deep coma. Right, exactly. Comas, conditions that could, like, severe hypothermia can Mm. resemble death. Mm -hmm. Um, And and you you can still be revived from that under the right conditions. conditions. Mm -hmm. Um, Those conditions are very difficult to achieve. Mm -hmm. Um, Even with modern medicine, it's very, very difficult sometimes Mm. um, to to save someone from that kind of a situation. But if you know, luck is on your side mm-hmm. and, you know, you you die out in a snowstorm and they bring you home and they assume you're dead because you sure, sure as shit look dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you just gradually warm up in the cellar or whatever. Yeah, and you revive. <laughs> and you revive, then as far as they can tell, you've just come back from the dead. Mm-hmm. You weren't actually dead, but you were close enough. Yeah. Kind of see where this concept yeah. of uh, vampires, of spirits possessing corpses, mm-hmm. um, this fear yeah, of, would, would have originated from sort originated. of natural yeah. phenomena. Yeah. Um, there's also the situation that a lot of vampire mythology, early vampire mythology, as distinct from sort of modern day vampire mythology, mm-hmm. the modern day vampire is very pale. Um, very sexy. Very sexy. <laughs> um, looks basically like just a very pale living person, has mm-hmm. fangs, otherwise is pretty much indistinguishable from a person. Yeah. The early vampire mythology, especially in Russia and no, Slavic Slava areas, um, I was... I think that's German, right? Or is that Slavic? Uh, I don't know. Off the top of my head. That vampire much more resembled a corpse in various stages of decomposition. Right. So vampires were often described as being bloated mm. and ruddy colored. Mm. And that was thought to be because they had been out drinking blood, right? Mm. But in fact, those are just stages Natural. of decomposition yeah. that occur naturally. Uh, there would also be um, claims that like the vampire was clearly still actually alive in an undead state mm-hmm. um, because their fingernails would keep growing and their hair mm. would keep growing. 
Um, but that's just actually because the skin recedes. Seeds, yeah. The skin actually, like, at during relatively early stages of, of decomposition, the skin tightens and recedes. So it looks like the nails are getting longer, but the nails are the same length. Yeah, it's just the skin. It's is just re- the skin is receding. And the same with the, the, hair. the hair and... Well, it's like the eyes don't close. Exactly. You know. So so, so there it was, looks like they're staring at exactly. you. Exactly. So there would be... So, so some of the myths was, yeah their eyes will still be open. Mm-hmm. If their eyes are still open in the coffin, that's a vampire. Yeah. If their hair... And, and they could be trying to do a spell a, Yeah, or trying something. to mesmerize, mesmerize you. you. If their hair and their nails seem longer, that could be a vampire. And that's really all just yeah. death processes happening. Exactly. But a lot of that stuff happened in the grave, and, and so it wasn't something people witnessed. Right. So if you think so-and-so has turned into a vampire and you exhume... Because, you know, there's shit happening in your town and you and they died recently and you exhume their coffin and you look at them. They're going to look different than you would necessarily expect them to look. Mm-hmm. And that's going to spook you out. And you're yep. going to say, yep, that person's a vampire. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was also claimed sometimes that if you exhumed a vampire, they would look too healthy. Hmm. So they would look too much like themselves, like they hadn't decomposed enough right. yet. And part of that was an incomplete knowledge of how decomposition worked, right? Mm -hmm. If it was winter Mm -hmm. and you put someone in the ground... They're going to get preserved. Yeah, they're going to stay in a more whole condition longer than you might expect. Yeah. So that was definitely part of the origins of uh, uh, vampire mythology, and that's why vampires looked so different in the early Mm -hmm. period than they do now, because... Early period vampires were based on, like, what actual dead bodies look like. Yeah. Not pleasant, by and large. Um, Scary. Scary, yeah. They also often showed up uh, in the mythology as arriving in their burial shrouds, Mm. which I think is actually where maybe the the boo ghost sheet thing comes from. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the burial shroud. That makes sense. Oh, my God. Boy, doesn't that put a whole new spin on it for you. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah, a lot of early vampire mythology involves them showing up covered in their sheet. Oh <laughs> covered in the goodness. burial shroud. Oh, my goodness. All y'all, who, all of us who have all thought we were imitating a ghost, we were actually imitating uh, possibly was, a vampire. It was maybe a vampire the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> so there were a few incidents of... A few historically documented incidents of vampire mania, hmm. which is basically like a witch hunt, except for vampires with corpses already that already yeah. exist. Yeah, uh, where basically, if there was a string of bad luck in town, hmm. everyone would decide it had to be a vampire. If it wasn't a witch, it's got to be a vampire. It's got to be a vampire. Uh, yeah, and if you well, don't have any suspects for a witch, someone's probably died recently. What I read was that part of it also was that. Eventually, over time, superstition started to die down and witchcraft, you know, they repealed some of these witchcraft laws because of the atrocities that happened Mm -hmm. with trials. Yeah. And so they repealed these and they stopped. But people still have to have things to freak out about. Exactly. (laughs) They still have to have things to freak out about. So it went from witch Witch craze to vampire manias. To vampire manias. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So like whole towns would become possessed by this conviction that there was a vampire in the graveyard and they would go around exhuming corpses Mm -hmm. until they found one that looked spooky. Oh, and the other thing I read was that because they were getting into this age of enlightenment Mm -hmm. and and learning about bodies and and things like that, scientists and doctors of the day began to believe vampirism was actually a disease of the blood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's why the vampire had to have blood. Yeah, that that mythology started to, to spread around 
the viral transmission theory yeah, effectively. Yeah. Basically. The, the, right, right. They didn't understand viruses, but it was cursed transmission yeah, by blood. transmission by blood and biting and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. It all kind of yeah. meshed sort of a, together. A, an early mythologizing of disease transmission. Yeah. Yep. Um, at mm-hmm. a time when disease transmission was just starting yep. to become like an understood phenomenon, mm-hmm. a- as opposed to something like the humors. Exactly. Right? Exactly. <laughs> L says just normal community activities about <laughs> digging up corpses and yeah. staking them just in case. What did you do this, this last week, honey? <laughs> uh-huh. Well, we fought a vampire. <laughs> the, the boys and I went out and we, we dug up some graves and yep. put some holly and stakes through the heart Which of is, the vampire. by the way, the... Like, the churches did not appreciate this. No. Because... Desecrating their Exactly. They're, de- they're desecrating graves. But you could <laughs> not control... Like, if an entire town gets transfixed by yeah. this idea, yeah. you couldn't control them at that point. No. no they were going becomes, to do it. It a mob. Exactly. Because um, they're frightened. Exactly. They're going to do it. And this is the only thing that's going to satisfy them mm-hmm. is finding a corpse that looks spooky enough that they can decapitate it and feel like yep. they've solved the problem. And they would do that. They yes. would decapitate the corpse. They would literally put a stake through their, yeah. their there chest. Are, well, I mean, all kinds of things. Yeah, there are there are a, a variety of methods mm-hmm. used for, for handling vampires. Yeah. There were a variety of theories about how a vampire could be caused. Mm-hmm. The first one, obviously, was you could be a witch or you could be cursed by a witch. Right. <laughs> because even if the church has said, there are no witches actually people who believe in vampires are they, still often going to believe in witches they're still going to believe in witches and of course we do that uh-huh, yeah, yeah. What, what else would we do <laughs> what else would we do <laughs> we either are turning into vampires or turning other people into that's vampires. right there is also a belief this was in and actually in china that an animal jumping over a corpse especially a dog or a cat jumping mm-hmm. over a corpse um before it had been buried could cause it to turn into a blood-sucking fiend. Oh, my goodness. Poor cats and dogs, yeah. man. They Un- always got the rough end of this. Unclear. It, <laughs> it, it, it was any animal, but it was yeah, probably, probably most just most likely to well, be cats and dogs. Because they do a lot of leaping. Yeah, well, and know. they tend to be in and human settlements. Exactly. But so it was, It was that was a belief that if uh, an unburied corpse was jumped over by an animal, it might turn into a vampire or mm. a being like a vampire. A being like a vampire of some kind. Uh-huh. Um, some kind of undead creature. Yeah. Uh, there was the cursed transmission theory, where mm-hmm. the biting or exchanging of blood mm-hmm. between a vampire and a human could turn that human into a vampire. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was also a belief in, I think this was in Germany, that untreated wounds could cause a corpse to become a vampire. Mm. So, like, if you died violently in some way mm-hmm. and your wound was not treated with boiling water and stitched up, you might turn into a vampire. That's interesting. So, like, the corpse had to be... Treated as if it was still alive. still alive and you were doing something curative to it before it was buried or else it might turn into a vampire. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. I was, I found that one very interesting. Yeah. It's interesting how zombie lore and yeah. vampire lore sort of intersect. kind of intersect. Yeah. Um, and I think that's because a lot of the pre-vampire undead being mythology mm-hmm. um, from various cultures around the world, they would usually not be just blood drinking. Right. They would also be flesh eating. Flesh eating. Or they would like eat children whole, but mm-hmm. only drink the blood of men or mm-hmm. whatever. Like mm-hmm. they would have specific dietary preferences, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> of course you would. Uh-huh. Like you do. But just like there were beings that were purely blood drinking fiends. Mm-hmm. Um, but often they 
they also ate flesh. Like it right. was a combined, a combined like thing, they yeah. ate the, the flesh was their food and the blood was their drink. Yeah. Was yeah. what it was in a lot of that in a lot has of a very uh, Christian-y overtone yeah, to yeah. it, doesn't it? There is that. <laughs> Um, the Catholics. Yeah. <laughs> so those are some of the, the most common ways to become a vampire. Animals, untreated wounds, being cursed by a witch, yep. and being bitten by a vampire. Being bitten by um, a vampire. But like I said, there were, and, and those are sort of the more modern mm. Understanding. understandings because mm-hmm. the early understandings really did tend to be more like was possessed by a spirit. Yeah. Yeah. Like an evil demon came up and some did it. Some kind of a demon came up and did it. So there were ways to prevent corpses from becoming vampires mm-hmm. because if none of those things happened, you might still become a vampire just because a demon saw your corpse was empty. That's right. So the there was burying the corpse upside down. Yep. Which I think the... Wasn't the, it the feet? So there are various methods. Yep. So either you bury a, a potential vampire. A potential vampire. Um, someone who could become a vampire. Either you buried them. Mm-hmm. So so like if you would normally bury so that the head is at the headstone and the mm-hmm. feet are at the bottom of the grave. You'd flip it. You'd flip it around so that their feet are at the headstone. Mm-hmm. There was also the method of just flipping them upside down so they were buried on their stomach. Oh, okay. And I think the theory there is that when they try to dig themselves out of the grave, they they'll just the dig themselves way. deeper into the ground. <laughs> Okay. I think the theory there is that, like, you haven't actually prevented the vampire. You've just prevented it from getting out. <laughs> yes. Yes. It just hmm. keeps going. It digs. It just digs deeper digs into the deeper earth. deeper into the earth. Yeah. And um, it digs its way to hell. Exactly. Another method that was like that was there was, um, if you had a potential vampire on your hands, you could sever the knee tendons mm. so that they couldn't get out. Oh, okay. So that they would be, they couldn't walk. Right, right. So that um, even if they turned into a vampire, they would just be stuck. Stuck in, in their, their coffin. Grave. Yeah. Another uh, method was to sprinkle seeds or grains Mm. around the grave because a very early vampire myth was that they were compelled to count things. That's interesting. Yeah. There there was this myth that, and you see this in some early vampire media too. Like I think this does show up in maybe Nosferatu, that if you like spill a bag of rice, this shows up in India, this shows up in China. If... A vampire comes across a bag of grains or rice or small countable things. They are compelled to stop and count every grain. Vampire OCD. Basically, it's it's a, it's called uh, in the in the text erythromania. Huh. So that's a, a common characteristic of vampires that we've of early vampires that we've really lost in modern yeah. vampires. We yeah. really don't see this with modern vampires at all. Can, but it was, I mean, it, it, can you just imagine? It, you know, it yeah. kind of like takes the scare. It does. Out of it. it does. But it, that this was a very it, common trait in early vampires was that they were compelled by some force or obsession to count every grain of something if it was did spilled. You just pour more. Yeah, like you could just literally just, you just pour it out over their grave. And then as soon as they come out of the grave, they will be compelled to stop and pick up all the pieces. And then presumably they'll get tired and go back to sleep in the grave. <laughs> okay, fair. <laughs> like that was, fair. The, that was the theory. Okay, interesting theory. Um, and you could use this if a vampire was coming after you. You could like spill, spill a, bunch, a of grain, bunch of grain and they would have to stop their attack. Right. So you could get away. So you could get away. Go get a steak. Exactly. <laughs> so that they could pick up all the grains. Where'd the garlic come from? So the garlic is uh, actually related to a whole class of atropoic protections mm-hmm. um, that come from nature. Garlic, wild rose, oh, yeah, that makes hawthorn, mm-hmm. um, a bunch of plants mm-hmm. were just sort of assigned to 
vampires don't like these things. That kind of makes sense. Um, yeah, I think these probably come back to local or regional mm-hmm. protective qualities of these plants. Yeah. Well, and also, if you think about it, especially if you go back to, like, ancient Greece and some of these other places, mm-hmm. like, some of these uh, were considered sacred foods mm-hmm. to various underworld deities. Exactly. So it would make sense that these would then be protections against evil spirits. I think it's I think it's actually yeah very related to the aversion to sacred objects mm-hmm. that vampires are typically mm-hmm. portrayed as having, and that also does go back mythologically. Sacred objects from a variety of cultures are supposed mm-hmm. to divert vampires, right. but I think the the garlic and the wild rose and the hawthorn and those plants mm-hmm. are from the same class of yeah. aversions. Yeah, they're just. We don't think of them in the modern day as yeah. having sacred connotations, but they did originally. Yeah, of So course. I think maybe it's possible that the people who who had these superstitions about vampires didn't even consciously recognize, like, oh, these are sacred yeah. plants. Yeah. But that folklore has been passed down yeah. long enough. They're protective. They're sacred. Exactly. You know? they, yeah. have, they have these they have qualities. qualities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think they're in the same class of aversions to sacredness they're just specifically aversions to natural sacredness. Right. I like it. Yeah. Uh, that's my theory anyway, because otherwise there's not a lot of like specific like, ooh, they don't like garlic because it smells bad. Like that yeah. that yeah. doesn't seem to, because like even garlic flowers will do it. Yeah. Yeah. Like. Just anything. Yeah. So religious tokens are one of the other sort of main ways to prevent a vampire from becoming, for to prevent a potential vampire from becoming a fully realized vampire. Well, we all know about the cross. There's the cross. Um, there is burying in consecrated ground mm-hmm. that didn't always work clearly because sometimes people would go around digging up churchyards saying there's a vampire in here. Oh my God. But it was believed that it sometimes worked <laughs> to, to prevent, uh, yeah. and there were specific prayers or incantations basically, okay. yeah. uh, to Jesus that you could write, that you could include in the coffin that would hypothetically prevent the corpse from becoming a vampire. That makes sense. There were also appeasements. So there was a theory in some parts of the world where vampire mythology uh, was prevalent that the corpse became a vampire because it was dissatisfied in some way. Mm. So sort of the same way that like a dissatisfied ancestor might become a malevolent ghost. Right. A dissatisfied corpse might become a malevolent vampire. So the theory was that if you gave the, if you buried them with all the things they might want or need, they would be appeased and would not become a vampire. (laughs) Kind of sounds like, you know, taking things from ancient cultures uh-huh. and remembrances from yeah. ancient pagan practices and, and ancient culture and things that just passed down that people probably forgot why they even did exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Like it, it you know, no longer has the, the re- sacred connotation. sacred connotation. But the, the, but the sort of cultural memory. The cultural of, memory is there yeah. of the purpose. Exactly. Because it's a tradition in a lot of cultures. A lot of cultures. A lot of ancient cultures Hello, especially. Egypt. Exactly. Um, the Greeks. All, the Greeks. Yeah, you you would Scandinavians, all kinds of people. They they think they did China the the Neanderthals. Yeah, they found their they buried buried with their tools exactly their weapons and their clothes. You know, all kinds of holes. One of our most ancient traditions as humans is to bury our dead with the things they might might need need in the the next life. Exactly. Yeah, we sort of lose that going into the medieval period. Mm Except when you think someone might become a vampire. Exactly. In which case, you do all that shit. You bury them with all the shit they might need hypothetically or want or have wanted when they to were alive keep them where they are so that they'll stay in the grave yeah yeah, yeah. it's so interesting yeah. isn't it it's fascinating to me how how uh mythology borrows or from um, yeah, how collective just, memory yeah and how it just sort of like 
it propagates down mm-hmm. generations, mm-hmm. even when you've, you've lost, lost the, original the, meaning. the core. Yeah. What, like, this was originally the practice for all the dead. It's mm-hmm. no longer the practice mm-hmm. for all the dead, but we remember doing it. Yeah. So when we have a special dead that we're worried about, yeah. we do all this stuff. It's All this stuff that we remember as as related to honoring the dead, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it really, really, really interesting way that, that that sort of... I guess, yeah, just cultural transmission, transmission, memory, memory. And it's all these, you know, and we see it even today, like I said, with with our uh, superstitions, Mm -hmm. you know, as simple as simple as saying God bless you to somebody when they sneeze. Yep. You know, because that's it's it's taken from this concept that uh, a spirit could enter you, a demon Mm -hmm. could enter you. And so you have to. It's the same way you're supposed to hold your breath when you go past a churchyard. Yes, Exactly. Or um, the throwing the salt over mm-hmm. the shoulder to prevent uh, a spirit from, yeah. you know. All, the, all these little discouragements. <laughs> yeah, all these discouragements. Because salt used to be incredibly expensive. Costly. costly. And so, if so it you, was a valuable sacrifice. Yeah, I learned this when I was learning about uh, Greek mythology mm-hmm. and, and superstitions that we got from them. And that was that they would, if they spilled some salt, they would throw it over their shoulder as an offering to uh, any negative spirits that might mm-hmm. You know, so they take that. So they take of... that uh, very expensive gift mm-hmm. instead of bothering their household. Yeah. Um, so there were a few other things you could do to protect yourself. Um, like I said, there were the sacred objects. There were the sacred plants. Mm-hmm. Um, it was believed for some reason that running water was that vampires couldn't cross running water. Oh, that's interesting. So like, if you could get across a bridge, they couldn't follow you across the bridge. How very Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Yeah. Wow. Very, very similar. Because what is what is the the headless horseman but a, a an undead being? An undead yeah, being. But yeah, so so there was a belief that vampires couldn't cross running water. I again wonder if this calls back to a the sacredness mm. of natural springs. Uh, yeah, of natural springs of natural um, features. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because running running water and it, also still water, but running water is easier to get across mm-hmm. <laughs> and to create a barrier for yourself. Uh, we're often affiliated with like gods mm-hmm. or s- the spirits, spirits of those of those bodies of water, or mm-hmm. they had healing or protective mm-hmm. properties. So I wonder if those things again sort of translated, translated down, down into the vampire lore of vampires can't cross running water. It's a fascinating idea. Yeah, there was also a practice in some. I think this was in Romania of putting mirrors on your front door facing outwards. Mm-hmm. Because the vampire would see that w- approaching your house would see that they had no reflection and would be scared away. Oh, how funny! Yeah. Um, or so not every vampire mythology believes that vampires don't have reflections. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, it comes down to whether the vampire mythology you're dealing with believes that the vampire still has a soul. Mm-hmm. Um, vampire mythologies that believe the vampire is now like a soulless being. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually present them as having no reflection. Mythologies that believe the vampire still is essentially the same person, still has that person's soul, they usually do have a reflection. Mm. But either way, if either they see they have no reflection and they get scared away, Mm -hmm. or they see the reflection of their bloated corpse and they get scared away. So that that was interesting, I thought. Um, Mm -hmm. There is, of course, the very common provision that homes are sacred spaces yes. so vampires can't enter them without an invitation an invitation remember that people uh-huh don't invite people into your house that might be vampires that's right because <laughs> they only need the invitation once they only need it once once they get it one time they can come in anytime they want that's actually an older mythology mm-hmm. um 
And that, again, I think it comes down to, I, th I think ultimately the majority of the ways to prevent, protect yourself from a vampire mm -hmm. come down to sacredness. Yes, absolutely. Um, the, the vampire is an unsacred being. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so any kind of interaction with sacredness mm -hmm. uh, provides a protective quality. Yeah. And a lot of ancient cultures, you know, they had ways to protect their homes. Mm -hmm. They had uh, idols that they would, you know, put in front of their gate doors guardians, and gate guardians yeah. and all kinds of stuff, yep. you know, which we pagans still do today. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and also just the house, the home yeah. is a, a sacred inviolable space. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Um, because it is, it's your safe space. It's where yeah. your home is or it's supposed to be. Right. So the, the home has a power that I think is related to mm -hmm. um, the power of the family. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is sacred in its own way. It is. So yeah, there were various methods for killing mm -hmm. vampires, mythological vampires. Mm -hmm. um, staking, I think, is the one everyone is most familiar with. Mm -hmm. uh, but according to the lore, the stakes did have to be made of specific woods. Yes, they did. So you couldn't just take a chair leg. Nope. <laughs> like you often see happening in the films now. Yeah. Um, it had to be made out of... And it varied depending... Region. On where you were. Um, but the common ones that I found were hawthorn, mm -hmm. which again was uh, one of the, the sacred plants right. that, that would uh, protect you from a vampire in general. Um, ash, yeah. oak, mm -hmm. and in uh, some some areas, aspen. That makes sense. But if you like, if you made a beach stake, it wouldn't it's do shit. It's not going to do shit. Yeah. yeah. Um, Beheading, I think, was also. Decapitation was a big one. Yeah, was um, a big one. It was actually. Not just for the corpse, but, you know. Yeah, but. Um, in lore. Yeah. It was actually very common if you believed there was a vampire when you were doing your exhumations and trying to find just the right chop one. The head off. You would just chop the head off. Yeah. Um, and then usually the head was buried differently. Yeah. So yeah. it was buried either in a different place or it was placed between the feet of the mm -hmm, corpse mm -hmm. or under the corpse's back. Yeah. Um, Somewhere they couldn't. Uh, ex exactly. Some some way to make it difficult for the for the head to presumably like reattach. <laughs> this is never made clear in the mythology, no. like what they think the head will do. If it if it will like reattach to the corpse, or if it, this is unclear, this is unclear. Um, but it's not going to be Billy Butcherson like you yeah know, from no, from but something Pocus Pocus. something special is usually done something with the head after the decapitation. Yeah, particularly recalcitrant uh, cases of vampirism where like you beheaded it already and it didn't work. Recalcitrant, yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, Naughty vampire yeah, exactly. just keeps coming back. Just keeps coming back. Uh, particularly pernicious vampires uh, were dismembered if the decapitation hadn't done the job. And yep. then the limbs usually were separated. Oh, my. Um, and then if even that didn't do it. Presumably this means they've taken care of the corpse and bad shit is still happening. Still happening. So they're still so they, blaming so it they on dig this it poor back up. individual body. Uh -huh. So they dig it back up. They say the vampire's still kicking. Chop off his legs so he can't kick anymore. Oh my God. <laughs> so they would dismember the corpse. And then if even that didn't do it, it was time for incineration. Yep. <laughs> so if even, even dismemberment didn't do it, you could just always burn the bitch to ashes. Now, why they didn't do that in the <laughs> first case, with, yeah. unclear. Why that was not always the go-to. It was a last resort for it was, some reason. It was. It was the, the, and it usually did progress like in this fashion. It would be steak mm -hmm. first, then decapitating, then dismembering, then incinerating. Well, to be fair... To burn a corpse is actually a kind of a difficult prospect because that's true. They it takes it's, a very hot fire, and the corpse is getting wetter all the time. Yeah, and it, it it's it's not an yeah. easy thing it's, to do. It's to burn it to ashes yeah, in to particular. Burn it to ashes. Like you can char a corpse, mm -hmm. but to incinerate it to ashes yeah. is 
difficult. Very difficult. And in the majority of cases, you're still going to have long bones and things like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it was... Before the advent of the industrial incinerator, Mm -hmm. it was... Mm -hmm. Very hard. Difficult to properly incinerate a corpse. Right. Um, And your local village just may not have the supplies for that. Exactly. Especially if you're already experiencing a rash of bad luck. Exactly. Which is happening if you are going around trying to find vampires. Mm -hmm. Want to read a diverse and inclusive fantasy that's pagan-friendly? Check out Arrow's Flight by M.B. Strang. Arrow's Flight... An unknown menace moves through the polite society of Pearl's holding. If not caught in time, it will bring down not just the hallowed knights of the Pearl Order, but also everyone who lives and works with them. The answer lies with a young woman of mysterious origins whose life has been touched by tragedy. To fulfill her potential, she must confront her past and discover a future more amazing than she'd ever imagined and find the inner strength to fly. She's not alone. A handful of knights, a hearth mage, and their magical companions all test their physical and magical limits to make things right before it's too late. Otherwise, dark forces will overtake the knights for good. Go to mbstrang.com for details on ordering your copy now. Scroll down to the bottom of the main page to sign up for the newsletter and receive a free story. Hail Dictinus! Hail Dictinus, we got through it. Uh, L points out some Christian burials do insist on whole burial, something mm. to do with the resurrection at the end of the world. Yes, that's that true. That is true. Although you would think if someone is uh, turning into a vampire, they're probably not. They're not going to be. Yeah, joining the the the, the, the holy returned people. legions. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, I did also find the what's believed to be the first named vampire, mm. like the first corpse identified as a vampire. Mm-hmm. This was a gentleman by the name of Jure Grando mm-hmm. in uh, 1656. He mm-hmm. died of illness mm-hmm. in modern-day Croatia. Okay. Um, I believe the name of his village was Kringa or something like that. And for 16 years after his death, a vampire terrorized his town. Oh, wow. So the legend goes that starting the day after he died and continuing for 16 goddamn years, Mm. a vampire would prowl the streets at night and knock on the doors of village houses. And if he knocked on your door, even if you didn't answer it, someone inside would die the next day. Well, that's creepy. Uh Uh-huh. He also was visiting his widow and uh, harassing and sexually assaulting her, according to her. Okay. So very early instance of the sexual appetites mm-hmm. of the vampire here. Because uh, mm-hmm. like I said, this is in 1656. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, the local priest... This takes 16 years. 16 years. <laughs> but eventually the local priest uh, confronts him in the middle of the night, confronts the vampire, according to the account, and tries to send him away in the name of Jesus, and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So the bailiff goes after him. Chases the vampire down with a hawthorn stick and tries to stab him in the heart with a hawthorn stick. Right. Um, there were actually various ways that you could stake. Some some cultures you had to stake them in the mouth. Some you had to stake them in the eyes. Some you had to stake them in the heart. Some you had to stake them in the stomach. You know, it never made sense to me, the heart, because the heart is hard to hard get to. Hard to get to. Yeah, and that's actually the, a problem <laughs> with Jure Grando, because the bailiff tries to stab him in the heart with a hawthorn stick, and it just bounces off his chest. Yeah, because of the because fucking there's ribs. The ribs. There's the ribs in the way. So, <laughs> so It's hard to get to the heart. Yeah, so that doesn't work. 
So the vampire gets away that night, but now, after 16 years, they're all riled up and they're ready to finally get this vampire mm-hmm. who's been just knocking on doors and killing people and harassing his widow. Mm-hmm. Um, so he rustles up a whole posse mm-hmm. to go dig up the grave of Jerry Grande because mm-hmm. they, they know it's him. Yeah. His widow's been complaining this whole time. So they dig up the grave of Jerry Grande. They try again to stab him in the chest with a hawthorn stick as he's lying there in the coffin. Again, it fails to penetrate his chest. Because the ribs are in the way. Mm. Um, By this time, it's 16 fucking it's been years. 16 years. So you would think. He should be just a skeleton he should by be now. Quite decomposed, yes. Uh, yeah, he, they should be able to, to Easily. at least get through the, the but, ribs now. But according to the account, the corpse in the coffin looks healthy. That's creepy. Hence their belief that, yeah, there's the vampire. Mm-hmm. They try again. They try to stab in the chest. It mm-hmm. doesn't work. Mm-hmm. They can't get the stick to go through. So finally, they send one guy back while they all watch the corpse to make sure it didn't go anywhere. One guy back to the village who gets a saw. (gasps) There we go. He comes back and they start sawing off the head of the vampire, at which point it starts screaming and they proceed to decapitate this screaming, writhing vampire for the rest of the night. Oh my God. But that does solve the issue. No more vampirism in the village of Dura Grande. Oh my God. That's crazy. You know, I've actually, I think I've heard that legend before. Yeah, that, that's, that, that's supposed to that be the, the first specific yeah. vampire that we know of. I've at least heard parts of that mm-hmm. story. Like I said, there had been stories of vampiric mm. instances mm-hmm. um, before this, but Jerry Grando is the first named, named. individual um, who is supposed to have become a that's vampire. Kinda, that's kind of horrifying. <laughs> yeah, the way it's described. The way it's described. And I do wonder, like, you wonder... What was happening? Yeah, what was what was happening? In what was the, in going on in Kringa? Like who was actually assaulting that it, wife? Exactly. Who was in who the was, name of exactly her, who was her assaulting the widow? What was going? Like was there a plague? Was there mm-hmm. a sickness in the Is in that the why town? People were dying? Why people were dropping dead? What was up with Jure Grando's corpse? With his corpse. That now the only thing I could think of was like, would some crazy person be sleeping down there? I, this like, is pretending this, to be him. Right? Like, this is the thing, like, <laughs> because the bailiff chased the supposed vampire mm-hmm. one night, mm-hmm. couldn't kill him because the, the, the stake yeah. bounced off the chest, mm-hmm. which could ap- easily Absolutely. happen with a living human breathing Absolutely person could. who was harassing with Jure a stick. Exactly. Now he got a sharp knife exactly. or something that's different. But, it's, but he's got a hawthorn he's stick. He's got a stick. Because he's, he's following the traditions, yeah. you know. He believes he's got a vampire. Mm-hmm. So he's chasing this man. From the widow of Jerry Grando, who he believes is the corpse of Jerry Grando, the vampire of Jerry Grando, mm-hmm. and doesn't succeed in killing him, does he get a good look at him? Mm-hmm. Doesn't say. Mm-hmm. Does, so, like, does he know it was Jerry Grando? When mm-hmm. they open up the coffin, is it the same Jerry Grando? Mm-hmm. Does anyone know? It's been know. 16 years. What are we looking at here in this, co- in this coffin? But from the account, it's him. the corpse they have is healthy looking and definitely a vampire. Very very. And starts, is, scr- and starts so screaming, screaming during the decapitation. Well, wouldn't you? Yes. Well, <laughs> you would think. But that that's actually unusual. Yeah. In a lot of vampire accounts, they once don't. the what, when they're dug up, they stay inert. They often stay inert in the, yeah. in the coffin. Yeah, that's why they're Through able, the whole death. Exactly. That's why they're able to decapitate them, cut off their hands and their legs mm-hmm. and... Stick a hawthorn stick yeah, through their... So it's actually, it's actually pretty unusual that the, the vampire of Jerry Grando mm-hmm. 
uh, seems to awaken during yeah. this process. Yeah. Although it does make sense how now modern lore yes. includes that Def- concept. That, you see that happen a lot now in modern vampire modern media vampire. where the vampire mm-hmm. wakes up during yep. the, the destruction. Yep. Stephen King takes advantage of that to great success. Yes, in Salem's Lot. Yes. Which is a great vampire yeah. novel and film. Yes, yes. Multiple films, actually. There's more than one. I think one. one of them is a miniseries, One's it? a miniseries. One is from 1979, mm. I want to say, with David Soul, my favorite, because <laughs> that I was in ninth one. grade. And <laughs> then uh, my understanding is they, they may be coming out with a new one sometime in the Ooh. next couple of years. I'm Intriguing. not sure. I'll be, so. I'll be interested to follow I hope that. they do, and I hope they do it well. Because yeah. sometimes you never know. So, yeah, it can go. It can go either way. Um, I liked the miniseries personally. Yeah, I, I did was too. very fond of the I was, miniseries. I was very so fond of the Yep. But so yeah, let's get into media. Let's get let's into get vampire into media. Vampire media. Hello, let's go to the original. Have to start with Bram Stoker and his Dracula. We actually have to start earlier than that. Ah. <laughs> I love Bram Stoker's We will Dracula. get to Bram Stoker's Dracula. But the very first modern vampire story... Mm-hmm. Is not... What's a, what's a not, grande? It's not, <laughs> it's not Dracula. It is a short story called The Vampire, spelled mm-hmm. with a Y. Okay. Yeah. Written oh, by yeah. John... The Vampire. Yes, The Vampire. Written by John William Polidori. That's right. I had forgotten about yep. that. Yes, so this Polidori. Was, this was written as a result of the same contest, the ghost story contest hosted by Lord Byron okay. that inspired Frankenstein. All right. There we go. And Byron himself actually wrote an unfinished vampire story, mm-hmm. which is now just called A Fragment. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an epistolary vampire story mm-hmm. that he didn't finish, but he had told some of his vampire story to his physician, John Polidori, who was there for the contest, and Polidori wrote The, the Vampire. Which is um, actually pretty good. It I've is. actually read it. It is actually a good story. Uh, I've forgotten about it that was, one. It was originally falsely attributed to Lord Byron, mm. and Lord Byron and Polidori both had to send, like, repeated complaints to the to, periodicals that had per, that had published it yeah. to issue a correction. Yeah. But so that is the earliest complete the modern vampire story. Lord Byron's unfinished fragment, which he never wanted published, is the earliest technical vampire story, but it was incomplete. Right. My apologies to Polidori <laughs> because I have read the vampire, you know, a it's long a time ago. It's a fun little story. It's a fun little story. But Bram Stoker's Dracula definitely overshadows it. Yes. Uh, it also overshadows Carmilla, which yeah. came before that. So uh, Carmilla by Sheridan Le Fanu, mm. who is another Irish author, just like Bram Stoker is, wrote his book about sapphic vampires. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, lesbian vampires uh, with a, some really fascinating uh, gender role reversals yeah. in, from Victorian trends mm-hmm. two decades before, before Dracula was Dracula. written. Yeah, I read that one. Yeah, so Carmilla... So so the, the timeline of modern vampire stories is technically Byron's Fragment, The Polidori. Vampire by Polidori, Carmilla by Lefanu, and then Dracula by Bram Stoker. Mm. And Dracula by Bram Stoker actually inherits, and inherits a lot from mm-hmm. um, especially uh, Byron's Unfinished Vampire Story, mm-hmm. which was an epistolary format, right. and Dracula is written yes. in an epistolary format. Exactly. And it also has a lot of narrative similarities to Carmilla. Yes. The difference is that Carmilla is a novella, and Dracula is a full-length novel. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably part of why Dracula gathers so much more momentum. Right. Because Um, it's it's just longer. It's more 
fleshed yeah, out. Yeah, it's more complete. More complete, even in an epistolary format. Yeah. The one thing that obviously it did borrow from uh, Carmilla mm-hmm. is the uh, the gender and sexuality themes that are inherent throughout the entire thing and kind of and um that definitely you could say push against the victorian sensibilities there's a really interesting tension between carmilla and dracula yeah so dracula is written with a very masculine focus a very homoerotic focus yes um bram stoker is now thought to have been probably homosexual. Yes, in um, fact, I was reading he um, began writing the novel one month after the imprisonment of, of Oscar, Oscar Wilde, Wilde for homosexuality. Yeah, uh, he wrote a lot of really very sad letters mm-hmm. about the the Oscar Wilde situation and about his feelings about that and sort of processing that. He never admitted to a homosexual feeling. That's because it would have been criminal. It it was criminal to do so. um, Mm -hmm. But it is believed by most historians who study Bram Stoker today that he was homosexual. Mm -hmm. It's unclear whether or not he ever acted on his homosexual desire. Mm -hmm. But uh, Dracula is believed to be essentially his processing of the Oscar Wilde situation. Well, and what I was reading was that the the eroticism, the, the kind of gender bending mm-hmm. uh, of roles was Jonathan Harker is put in to a, if you will, submissive. Right. He's sexual, damseled. He's damseled by not only Dracula himself, but by the female vampires who take the brides, a, yeah. the brides who take a more masculine, if you will, uh, dominant role yeah. in that whole scenario as far as their their roles as seen by Victorian society. Right, in the very restrictive In the very restrictive roles, and roles of sexuality. Of, yeah. Yeah. So that's why, that's where they're, I think modern scholars are saying right. there's this kind of idea, maybe not as much as in uh, Carmilla. Carmilla, in a way that he was processing. Yeah, so I think the, the defining difference between Carmilla and Dracula, um, aside from the genders of the protagonists right. and the vampires in question, is that Carmilla actually portrays its vampire protagonist in a sort of a sympathetic way. Mm-hmm. Um, she has a genuine emotional connection to her victim. Their love is portrayed as being very romantic. Mm. Whereas Dracula's relationship with Harker is more obsessive and, and controlling. Temp- and temptation. Tempting, tempting, yeah. Um, and I think the difference there is that Bram Stoker is dealing with his very personal mm-hmm. feelings of persecution mm-hmm. and danger, mm-hmm. the threat inherent in his homoerotic desire. Yeah. Whereas uh, Sheridan Le Fano in writing Carmilla is writing instead sort of a very feminist book that actually sort of reduces the power of Mm. men in the narrative and emphasizes the power of women in the narrative. So Carmilla is a like a deeply feminist text actually, if you if you go through it. Mm -hmm. Dracula is not feminist in the same way because it's it's so much more personal to Bram Stoker's like personal demons. Well and think about it. If he is a, a homosexual who cannot come out, mm-hmm. you know, because of because fear of, of the law. The law. Society is telling him he has to be mm-hmm. the uh he has to be this man's man. The man's man. He has to be the dominant partner. To have that flipped yeah. in this story, it could be his own way of expressing this is how I feel. I feel like I'm being forced. There, you know. there's a, there's an entrapment yes. in Dracula yes. that is not quite as present in Carmilla. Yeah. You see some of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, there is a predatory aspect to yeah. Carmilla, yeah. but uh, not the same kind of 
entrapment that Jonathan Harker undergoes right. at the hands of Dracula, which does seem to be very much sort of Bram Stoker processing his feelings of being trapped by his own desires mm-hmm. as much as by the society around him. Exactly, exactly. If you unpack, understand yeah. it and unpack it from that perspective yeah. of how he was actually kind of working through yeah, his, his own feelings. His trauma. His trauma. <laughs> Effectively. His trauma. And Dr- Dracula is a trauma book. Exactly. And I just on a different note, I think people should know that according to modern scholars also, they do not think that he got the name Dracula or based Dracula on Vlad the Impaler no. <laughs> or Elizabeth Bathory. Yeah, no. In fact, his notes state that he got the name Dracula from Whitby's public library, mm-hmm. and uh, he thought it was devil in Romanian. He thought it was the Romanian word for devil, yep. yeah. That's he, what he thought. He basically was using a... He was using the best resources he had yeah. available. Yeah. Um, so it's not what everybody thinks. No, it, yeah. It really has nothing to um, do with, and, with Vlad the Impaler. And, and, and I do want to give Bram Stoker credit here. Yeah. He wrote hundreds of pages of notes for this book before he even started writing it. He really The man did as it. much research as was humanly possible at the time. Of vampire lore and mythology, uh-huh. heavily drawing from Transylvanian he's, yeah, folklore he's, he's and He studied the location as much as he could. Yeah, like, he, he put as much realistic uh, yeah. information into his novel as he could. Without, like, physically going to Transylvania. Exactly. You got to give uh, Rom Stoker credit for that. And mm-hmm. I think that's probably part of why it became sort of the defining vampire yeah. book. Yeah. And sort of set this, the public consciousness mm-hmm. of that kind of vampire. Well, and also think about this. We are talking about the Victorian society. Mm-hmm. And it's very sexually titillating. Of course, these very right. repressed, repressed I, people. I do also want to note, though. <laughs> are going to want to read it. I do also want to note, though, there's a fascinating, if you actually read Dracula. Oh, yeah. There's this really clear distinction between the book and the adaptations. Yes. Dracula in the adaptations, the character of Dracula, Count Dracula, is always very suave and handsome and alluring. Mm-hmm. Dracula in the books is a nasty old man. He is, <laughs> he is he's repellent. Not pretty. He's repellent. <laughs> Which is why it's so strange. And Jonathan is repelled by him yes. as much as he is attracted, attracted to, him. to him. He doesn't understand his attraction. Yeah. He's horrified by exactly. his attraction. And that, I think, is the Bram Stoker dealing mm-hmm. with his, like... Bram Stoker had a lot of negative feelings about his own homosexuality, very much so. And that's sadly uh, uh, because of the time that he Um, lived in and the society he lived in. So then we get into more modern vampires, right? Yes. You got your Buffy the Vampire Slayers. Yes, hello. You got your Anne Rices. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. You got your True Bloods. Mm -hmm. You even got your Twilights. Mm Twilight, sadly, does have to be in there with the sparkly. You have to include it. You have to include the sparkly vampires. You have to include it. It's part of the canon now. Uh. I hate it. I hates it. <laughs> I don't know. I've 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 mellowed on Twilight over the years no. where I just don't care that much about no. it. But But ultimately for me, if you want to read a really good vampire story, mm-hmm. read Stephen King's Salem's Lot. Read Salem's Lot. Read That's Salem's good. Lot. Love because Salem's he Lot. does uh, It's a very horror. It's take very on horror the vampire. But it also has that alluring Yeah. The character Gwen and I have had some very long conversations oh God, yeah. about the vampire family that evolves yeah. through Salem's Lot. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. He comes across the you know the vampire old obviously right but he's he's very strange very strange but he's compelling but he's compelling and he he meets these people at night mm-hmm. obviously because he can't come yeah. out during the day which by the way i didn't get into it but that's actually uh one of the things that develops later yeah. it used to be the vampires were more powerful at night but they could come out during the day mm-hmm. 
Now it's just that they can only come out at night. <laughs> now they can only come out at night. Until you get Blade and you have your day right, walkers. Right, you got your day walkers. But that's something <laughs> special. Anyway. But, yeah. But, no, seriously, he's... Yeah, he's so he meets these outsiders. Outsiders. Mm-hmm. Um, People who are not part of this of the, of community, the community who are yeah. not who are rejected yeah which is significant in a town like salem's lot which is yeah. very small insular community maine community maine yeah always in maine always in maine. um and so he he finds these outsiders these outcasts mm-hmm. and creates a little vampire family yeah. from them and Gwen and I, like I said, Gwen and I love Salem's Lot. We've watched every iteration. Oh We've read God. the book a thousand times. Yep. And we have done so much, like, impromptu analysis yes, <laughs> of the vampire family from Salem's that's Lot. That's right. Um, because that's what he's building. He is building a family. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and there are a couple of cases where he's actually quite explicit about that. Kurt Barlow yeah, is the, the name of the vampire. Yeah. And he's he's very explicit in a couple of cases that he yeah. is he is building a family to yeah. replace one that I think he lost in Europe. Mm-hmm. And Richard Straker is the human who yeah. interacts with people, who is ghoul, mm-hmm. who um you know he's his business partner because they own an mm-hmm. antique shop, which is how Straker gets to know the community. Yep. Honestly, his first victims are children. You know, he goes after the teenagers, weakest. children, teenagers, children, yep. and um people like you said, people who are on the out, who are outcast, mm-hmm. um, who are on the outside of society and then ultimately it spreads from there mm-hmm. and originally like initially it sort of seems as if he's doing this because these are people who won't be missed but mm-hmm. they are missed they people are. do notice their absences and the way he frames it at least is less that he is going for people who won't be missed because he could just eat those people mm-hmm. and more that he is specifically changing people who he sees as outsiders mm-hmm. and wants to bring into his community so there are some other vampire media being listed in the Discord here. We've got What We Do in the Shadows, very mm. funny vampire comedy, which I'm obsessed with. <laughs> um, Only Lovers Left Alive, Underworld, the Underworld series, yes. Uh, Let the Right One In is also a good one. Lost Boys. Mm, Lost, Lost Boys. Lost Boys, that's a classic. Love that one. Do you recommend that one? I don't recommend the sequels, but the original. But the original, the, the OG original. Lost Boys. Did Has you it? know Kiefer Sutherland had an only like five lines in that entire thing. It's his presence I don't believe you. No, I'm serious. (laughs) I saw an interview with him. He had like the least amount of lines. He had like a handful of lines, but it's his presence that actually... I'm thinking about it. I guess that might be true. Yeah. It's his presence that just exudes vampire. Yeah. He feels like he is... He feels like he's talking all the (laughs) damn time. Yeah. But it's really just like making eyes. Yes. (laughs) It's, he's got a he's got the fewest lines in uh-huh. that entire movie. Yeah, I guess that is true. Now that I'm now that I'm thinking about it, I guess that probably yeah. is true. It yeah. just doesn't feel correct. It doesn't feel right. I know we're gonna have to watch it. We again. are. It's been a minute. But yeah, so yes, definitely Lost Boys. There is Blade, Helsing, the anime. Yes, yeah. Amara. Yeah. That that is a very good one. Mm-hmm. Um, very very uh, different vampire situation there. Very interesting. Yeah. Finn says, "Did you know we almost had a Blade Underworld crossover, but Marvel said no." Oh fuck them! Oh. Fuck them! That would have been glorious. Yes, it would. Oh, yeah, there's so many. There's so much. So good much good vampire, vampire media. Yeah, media out there. And then there's a funny. Didn't Jim Carrey do something? I don't know. Some kind of a hilarious you know vampire movie. I don't know. Oh, and then there was um, Fright Night. That's right. There Fright was Night. Fright Night. The original and the sequel that has David Tennant in it. Yes. I liked... I liked... Or not the sequel. The, the, the remake. remake. Thank you. I liked, I liked the remade Fright Night. I liked it, was it surprisingly very, it was, well. Well, because the original Fright Night was a dark comedy. Yeah. Whereas the remake 
is genuinely scary. Yeah, genuinely quite. Genuinely. There are a few moments There's in that. There's some hilarity. There is. It's a, it's a funny movie. It's a funny but there movie. There are a few moments in that movie where I'm like, oof. Woo. Yeah. <laughs> yes. They, they got me. Yes. Elle says Vampire's Kiss, which I have not mm. uh, seen. Who I don't said know Jackson likes the vampire's nephew or the vampire's assistant? Something, something, something like, like that. that. I don't know. Um, there's too many for us there's to list many. all of them, quite frankly. Um, and of course, if you want to go back old school, watch Nosferatu, the German black and white silent film. The Classico. The Classico. And uh, Gwen and I have also had some, some long conversations about the difference between the Nosferatu style vampire mm-hmm. and the modern sexy nobleman vampire. Mm-hmm. Because there is a difference. <laughs> uh-huh. The, the Nosferatu vampire is almost an animal. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a really interesting distinction. Which is funny because the Salem's Lot TV series mm-hmm. uses that the, more... the Nosferatu, yeah. whereas the remake TV series yeah. uses the character from the book, the very the more suave, suave yeah. Barlow. So we'll talk a little bit about the metaphors of vampires, because we're getting quite close on time here. We're way past time. We're past time. Um, (laughs) So we'll talk a little bit briefly about the metaphors of vampires. There is obviously the vampires are very, very gay situation, which, again, hails back to the the Bram Stoker Stoker. Dracula. Seriously. Um, And Carmilla, for that matter, because like I said, those are definitely lesbian vampires in there. Don't let the epistolary nature of the book stop you from Yeah, if you if you are struggling with Dracula, I actually recommend there is now a podcast, Re-Dracula, yes. which is going through the epistolary Dracula, but in the order that the epistolary fragments are written, like mm-hmm. in timeline order, because the original book Dracula does not present them in timeline order. No. It makes more sense. Um, it's 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 a different read. It's, it's less different. it's a little less of a mystery. Yeah. Because um, the way Dracula is originally formatted uh, formatted is done that way to preserve the mystery. Because remember, at the time that Dracula was written, a lot of these tropes were new to people. Yeah. Carmilla had been written. Mm-hmm. Um, the vampire had been written, mm-hmm. but they had not gained quite as much widespread popularity. So these had not become like ingrained tropes in the consciousness yet. So Dracula was a mystery book at the time it was written. Um, And that's why it's written this way and why the fragments are laid out the way they are. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you are struggling with that, uh, I recommend going and finding Re-Dracula, the podcast. It's Um, worth it. And that'll that'll maybe help you access Dracula in a different form. Mm-hmm. There's also the sexual threat or excitement metaphor mm-hmm. with vampires that comes very much from the the Victorian moors. Mm-hmm. Um, even aside from the homosexuality, there's just like just there's, the restrained sexuality exactly, of the exactly. Victorian era. Um, you have Lucy and Mina mm-hmm. um, um, being threatened right. by by Dracula, um, and Lucy also being sort of enthralled by mm-hmm. Dracula and becoming a vampire herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot. Of modern vampire lore, modern vampire presentation that has to do with sexual threat or excitement. Mm-hmm. In particular, uh, you often see a younger woman mm-hmm. and a vampire because the vampire represents this overpowering sexual force that right. she wants but mm-hmm. can't admit to wanting. Exactly. Right? You see this happen in in Twilight yeah. uh, as well, like mm-hmm. even even in, in stuff like that. Uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yep, hello. Um, with Buffy and Angel in mm-hmm. particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later with Buffy and Spike. Mm-hmm. The vampire is domineering mm-hmm. because it it provides a... So, sort of like a, a rape fantasy does, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. It provides a layer of abstraction or 
um, distance from the woman's own sexual desire Mm -hmm. in a society which often demonizes that sexual desire. Absolutely. There is also the theme of predation by the rich Mm -hmm. or by the privileged, or in particular in Dracula, we also see a, a theme of predation by the colonist. Yeah. Bram Stoker himself was an Irish author who was writing from a position of an Ireland that was under the thrall of England, Mm -hmm. that was colonized by England. Bram Stoker was an Irish nationalist. He worked through a lot of shit in his novel. He did, he did. Um, And so you, like, there's... But he layered it under this story. Yeah. So his messages were getting out there, but not necessarily, you know... Yeah, they were subtle. They were subtle. So you you see this happen as well in vampire stories, where Mm -hmm. you have the... It's usually a European, Mm -hmm. a powerful rich European aristocrat Mm -hmm. who comes into a new environment and infects it, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Steals from it. He Mm -hmm. steals the blood, the vitality, Mm -hmm. um, in some places the culture or the purpose of the people from the environment he is invading, Mm -hmm. right? That's a very clear colonial metaphor. But there's also something about, like, the metaphor of the vampire has evolved over time. Yes, it has. And this is why we sort of see vampires becoming less and less obviously antagonists and becoming, you know, we start to see the heroic vampire. Yeah, more sympathetic more sympathetic portrayal of vampires. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that comes down to sort of the modern fears have mm-hmm. changed from the time when the vampire was at its heyday. Mm-hmm. Or when it, it's still in its heyday. Mm-hmm. The time when the vampire was first reaching public consciousness, right? right? Like when Bram Stoker was writing right. vampires. Exactly. We are now a more sex positive culture than we used to be. Obviously still a lot of work lot to of do work there. A lot of work to do. But we're a more sex positive culture than we used to be. So the domineering vampire sexual threat figure Mm -hmm. has been sort of transformed into this appealing or more nuanced portrayal of like, well, I can have the the sexy vampire Mm -hmm. mystique and also he can be a good guy. Yeah. And it's not my, like, we can actually have a real relationship, right? Like it's that linking of the sexual desire with the romantic desire, Mm -hmm. which we don't see as much of in the early vampire media. In the early vampire media, it's very much sexual desire. In later vampire media, you start to see a romantic desire also being intermingled with that sexual desire. Yeah. It's an interesting change. It's really, and it's, you can sort of track it through Mm -hmm. media watching that evolution. It's really, really interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. And I think it does track pretty closely with sort of our fears as a society moving away from sexual impropriety. Right. And towards sort of more existential threats. It's true. Yeah. And so we start to see, yeah, a more nuanced vampire or mm-hmm. like an acknowledgement like that. Well, if the vampire is a person, then surely the vampire does mm-hmm. have some right to live. Well, and the, I, the concept that sexuality is powerful, but it's not evil. Exactly. You know? Yeah, it can be a compelling force. It can be a compelling, powerful force between individuals, mm-hmm. but it is not inherently exactly. an so evil thing. Submitting to that desire yes. does not taint you in exactly. some way. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Whereas like Lucy in Dracula, she she submits to Dracula and, and becomes an evil being herself. Exactly. And that's a, a huge part of, mm-hmm. of the that whole undercurrent yeah. of 
sexuality and sensuality Mm -hmm. as being unclean. Yeah, these evil forces. These evil forces. Um, Yeah, these things that will taint you. Yeah. And we start, we we definitely start to move away from that as vampire media progresses. Yes. And we get the more romantic vampire, the less... Like, the romantic vampire is still sexual. Yes, very much absolutely. so. And is still sometimes specifically a sexual fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if you have, usually in vampire media, the it's usually a young woman mm. um, who is being seduced by the vampire. Yes, usually. Is, um, is single. Mm-hmm. But sometimes she's coming out of a bad breakup. Or sometimes mm-hmm. she still has a boring partner mm-hmm. uh, who the vampire supplants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very much the sexual yeah. appeal of the, the bad vampire, boy. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, the bad boy trope. Exactly. As vampire. Um, but then you start to see sort of the nuances and the, the further layers of the vampire and the vampire becomes a more, like I said, a more romantic and a more heroic figure. Yes. We have started to see quite a few heroic vampires mm-hmm. in the last probably 15, 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Let's see. I did also have stuff about psychic and energy vampires, but we may have to we save that for another episode. For another episode. <laughs> I told you we'd be able to talk about this the whole yeah. damn time. Yeah. It's vampires. I know. It's vampires. I know. <laughs> How do you thought we could keep this short? Yeah, I know. I, was I like, do not I was know. Like, we'll just go through it fast. No. No. Nah. <laughs> Like I said, you could make a whole podcast <laughs> just about vampires. We just did. No, I mean a whole podcast series. Oh, like a whole po- show yes, yes, that is oh, just yeah. about vampires. Oh, fuck yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and maybe if we ever stop doing this show, we'll do that. <laughs> we'll just transition over to vampires. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to... Yeah, Amara was correct. Uh, Amara's, Amara called it early on that we would have to do psychic and energy vampires <laughs> in a different episode. And Amara was correct. Amara is right. <laughs> so shout out to Amara Sapphire Wolf. You got us. We're going to have to do a whole separate episode on psychic and energy vampires. <laughs> oh, but this has been fun. It has, yes. Um, now go out and watch some vampire Yes, watch movies. some vampire media. There's so much Listen out there. Listen to some stories. So much of it is good. Um, there are uh, so many vampire podcasts out oh, there right yeah. now. Some really, really good ones. Mm-hmm. So search vampire in your podcast media mm-hmm. player of your choice and, and see what comes up because there's yeah. a lot of good stuff out Get there. some audio dramas. Yeah. I do um, recommend, uh, again, listening to re-Dracula, yeah. uh, especially if you've uh, struggled with Dracula as a text. Mm-hmm. That, might be, that might be fun for yeah. you. Ran and Gray has one comment that I want to shout out before we close up. The level of vampire your favorite vampire is completely determines your subsequent monster fucker level. Mm. And monster fuckers, by definition, just are people who desperately want to be loved regardless of appearance or inherent monstrous qualities you may show. No, I'm not speaking from experience. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's true. Mm -hmm. There is definitely a quality of... um, There's also... We didn't even get into it, but there's Mm -hmm. also like a mental illness or a a chronic illness um, metaphor that you can make with Mm -hmm. vampires. Mm -hmm. And there is definitely an appeal in like... Yes, even though this this being yeah. is outside normative values and has mm-hmm. non-normative like life requirements, they can still be yeah. valued and worthy of of love. And it and it speaks to people's inner fantasies that mm-hmm. may, they may not be able to to even uh, articulate to even articulate yeah. in in their regular everyday life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot there. Like I yeah. said, you could make a whole show about yes, vampires and vampire media and how it intersects with. Oh my god! Psychology oh and god, yeah. politics, and there's so much so to talk much, to. So much, so much, so much. Um, but we just don't have time for that. Not today. <laughs> so we're already at nine twenty. Yeah. So we're <laughs> we are gonna wrap this one up. 
if you if you want to find us, yep, you can find us by Googling or using the search engine of your choice. The number three and the words pagans and a cat, or the number three and the letters P-A-A-C. You can also find us online at the number three pagansandacat.com, where you'll find links to all the things we do, including our Patreon, where you can help support us. You can also support us at co-fi.com slash the number three pagans and a cat. You can find Gwyn's blog, her Patheos Pagan blog, where she blogs twice a month currently. I think I'm going to talk about vampires this As you week. should. And you can also find her on TikTok, where she probably will also do spooky things. Yes. And in, fact, in the name on, of spooky season. Yes, exactly. I haven't done a lot. I've been tired, y'all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, I am going to start on Saturdays a... Um, a limited series on um, spellcasting. Yeah. Basically, base, basic spellcasting. It is at the request of one of our listeners. Mm. And she asked if I would do um, basic spellcasting. On TikTok. On TikTok. So I'm going to start doing, you know, one a week mm-hmm. starting on Saturdays. So if you're interested in that, follow going on TikTok. That's right. All right. I think that is everything that we do. Yes, I do believe it is. Okay. Then goodbye. Bye. <laughs>